Welcome to the Lift Ed Podcast. My name is Eric Gammon and I'm uh, joined by my co-host, uh, Scott McKean. We are recording in the basement of uh, a studio of the Edmonton Community Foundation, who has generously donated the space to us. And uh, as our host let us in on her day off. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Community Foundation. That was really nice. Yeah. Um, and thanks, Eric. On today's podcast, we get to meet someone who is a blast from my past. Peter Smith and I were at Grant McEwen College together in the early 1980s studying journalism. Many of us from that class went into newspaper or broadcast careers, but Peter kind of fell off the radar. Turns out he had another passion in mind, which we will talk about today. So what happened after journalism school or what, uh, what pushed you onto a different path? Yeah, I was young enough when I had finished journalism. I was um, 20 at the time. I was doing some volunteer work with the Youth Emergency Shelter um, at that time and uh, enjoyed doing that and figured I had time on my side so I was able to return to school. Um, I wanted to return to school and uh, follow a path uh, in social work, um, which had been uh, kind of part of my family um, and wanted to continue doing the volunteer work and then make that into more of a career uh, with the goal because I wanted to combine writing and social work. So being able to do that. So it's worked out well. So while I was partying at McEwen College, you were volunteering. Uh, and what was it for you to go into volunteering, there was something then about your early life that led you to that. And what, what was it? Yeah, my, both my parents, uh, when we grew up in, in a household where they were volunteering, both of them, in numerous uh, organizations. This was in Wales. And then when we, we came to Canada when I was 12, and, and they picked it up here as well and got involved. Felt a, they felt a sense of responsibility of um, being active in the community, giving back to the community. And, uh, and it was a very, very natural thing for us to do. Um, and it would, it, the youth area even then had piqued my interest. So um started with the Youth Emergency Shelter, which is uh, my first volunteer gig. And you wouldn't have been much older, right, than the kids at the Youth Emergency Shelter at the time because you're 18 right. to 20 or something in those years. Yeah, that's true. It was uh, learned a lot quickly, um, and good people around to support to support me in that. Um, but it was a good experience, and uh, so with that, continued then uh, down the path to going into social work. Thirty-two years of children's services. Yeah, um, and I wanted to see if we could start off this way. Can you? From you know, we see problems on the street. We read about it or hear about it, but I don't think uh, the layman has a good understanding of how big an issue it is at risk or high risk yeah. youth. The population that you would have been dealing with in those thirty-two years is it is it big and broad? Is it a hundred of these kids in a city of a million like Edmonton, or uh, you know, can can you say? 
Yeah, so I, I would say probably a few hundred. And we separate out um, for the because I was involved in the high risk youth initiative with the government of Alberta Children's Services in the Edmonton region, um, and we there was a lot of youth having struggled. Um, so, so under the hard to serve umbrella, there was the at risk population and then there was the high-risk youth population. Um, so the at-risk would be more, uh, they have vulnerabilities, um, they could go down the wrong path, they're probably experimenting possibly with weed or uh, drugs, um, but they have enough protective factors that with a bit of support or over time they would kind of figure things out, work, work through them. Um, and then there's the high-risk youth population, which is a population we refer to as a disconnected. So these were youth that didn't have those protective factors. They didn't have family. They didn't have key people in their lives. They didn't have that coach or that person from the church or somebody in the community looking out for them um, that they could connect with and, and talk to about what was going on in their life. So these were the... Uh, population that were using drugs and alcohol or addictions or cutting or crime or whatever, the angry at society, finding ways to cope, numb out, escape their trauma um, that they've lived with probably all their lives, uh, most of them, um, living on the streets, open to being sexually exploited. Uh, so all of those things coming together that separates them out from the at-risk population. Um, so we'd estimate there was uh, a two to two fifty, perhaps, of uh, those youth in the children's services system. But then there's a lot more just in the community, and it's hard to quantify that and and know what's going on in their life and if they would kind of fit that criteria of high risk youth. Um, but the community agencies will say, yeah, there's there's lots out. Um, they're currently seeing an, an uptick in. Uh, unhoused youth um, with through COVID and through some changes in children's services that they're seeing those numbers go go up. Um, as people recognize COVID was a tough time. Um, and for some of those youth, when they couldn't see their supports, um, there was an, an, a higher rate of uh, returning to all coping patterns. So getting involved in their addictions again, perhaps uh, not having people to reach out to. Um, so there was a problem with with the opioid crisis, fentanyl crisis, that there were ODs and a uh, number of youth lost their lives in that time. Um, and in a divided society, there's still lots, lots going on and um, housing's a big issue and it, it impacts the youth. Uh, it, it's not, it's not an, just an adult problem. It start, can start very young for these, for these youth. My, my mom is actually a social worker and it is a, a tough, a tough gig. Like we use really nice language like uh, child welfare, but, uh, you know, doing an apprehension is just terrible thing to have to do to a family, um, regardless of what the circumstances are. And so you've been doing, you obviously did it for a very long time. Is there things that you think, well, I wish I could have done that? Because I felt like my mom was constantly breaking rules to like lead to success. Like I don't remember a Christmas that we didn't have a kid come from a group home and stay with us, like, or, or several, you know, but that wasn't, she shouldn't have been doing that, but she wanted them to feel love on that day. Cause 
that's that was her sense. Uh, so I wonder if you sort of can talk about some of the rules. Maybe you you either broke or feel like we got to scrap this one because uh, it's just it's keeping us from doing from helping these kids that really need a system help. Yes. So. I- yeah, a few years in into working with children's services, uh, it was it was a struggle um, working in a in a system, a bureaucratic system that was very risk management, um, lots of rules, lots of policies, legislation that has to be followed, um, and that that was tough. And so there was a period of time I thought I I either have to leave or make this work. And started to push the system to see how much it would bend. Um, so, and to my surprise, it bent more than I anticipated it would. And there were also some good, caring people that I connected within the system, managers and supervisors that were that were helpful. Um, and so, yeah, I did push push the envelope. Can you give an example, Pierre, of of that's where you would have pushed to to see change? Um, yeah, it would be, uh, yeah, think of an example. Um, just in the amount of time spent with, spent with the youth. Um, your, your, your schedule time, yeah. limited amount of time and you had to sort of try to find a ways to add to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't make in the system work because there's, there's a heavy administrative piece as well. But I think if we weren't doing, if we're not doing the face-to-face work, if we're not making the connections and building relationships, um, then you question, well, you know, what's the end goal to here? Is it to push kind of families, children, youth families through the system or, or help make a difference? I mean, think back to why we got into this in the first place. What, what was the purpose? Um, no, n- nobody shows up at the office, to, goes into social work or child and youth care and wants to sit at a computer, wants to tell kids what to do, wants to threaten family to take them to court or apprehend their kids. Yeah, yet we ended up in some of those things. So it was challenging um, some of those systems. I, Children's services should be out in the community. We should be getting. We should be building relationship with other communities, with people in the community, getting to know the youth on their turf, and kind of you know get out of the office and and uh, and doing the direct work with with the uh, with the youth and the families. I I love that. I think. He- yeah, I, I think that's that w- that would be ideal because social workers, police, fire, they they show up once there's a problem. Right. You know, they're they're not part of ensuring that that child is safe all the time. They're showing up when that child's not no longer safe or when there's an right. issue in the household. And if you're in the community, I think you can you you know who the, who is who is struggling, what they're struggling with, before before you're showing up with a police officer um, right. to, to, to take their kid away. So, yeah, yeah I think uh, that that to me really resonates. And, and then that our systems sort of pretend like they're not part of the community. They stay back, right. but they are. They're, you live in these neighborhoods, you know, yeah. but you don't have the opportunity to sort of invest that time and energy into the neighborhood until there's a problem. Right. And a lot of fear around children's services and being an authority, which... Um, had the good fortune to be working in a couple of community projects, working out of a school, working out of Boyle Street Community Services and Bissell Centre at the time. Um, you know, and in the inner city, we refer to as the 
the kid snatchers. Um, but if you're present and you're engaging and building relationship, that starts to go away. Um, and even community workers who the mindset of their work is to protect their families from the system, but we were working with them um, so they could bridge that gap and say, no, we, we know these people, we think they're okay, and then we could work together. But you, you can't, you have to be in the community to do that. And, and like you said, with, with youth, very common to hear a youth who say, I only see my worker when I'm screwing up, right? Um, so you don't, it's hard to build relationship that way. So um, I always remember when back in the, uh, when I first started at the Edmonton Journal, I was on a cop beat and saw things that I'd never seen before, met people I would have never met. And I talked about, sort of described this as the other side of the curtain, that a lot of us in our privileged lives don't have to see that. And, and, and you were on the other side of the curtain a lot. And so I'm hoping... You can explain, maybe not an individual case, but like what happened to these kids that they ended up um, at risk or high risk for criminal offending or probably uh, suicide or um, addiction, homelessness, all this stuff. Like, how did that happen? Yes, I, a lot of the... Um the youth we work with is so they don't just appear as high risk youth. Right? Not one day they're a high risk youth. Uh, it's where they come from, as you as you say. Um, often for this population, the trauma started um, before they were born, um, possibly with a with uh, trauma. There've been a lot of uh, intergenerational trauma. Um, it's about 70% of our youth are Indigenous, right? And 69% of children in care are Indigenous, so it's not a surprise. Um, so we know the multi-generational trauma because of colonialism, residential schools, the 60s scoop, that's, that's very real. Um, not all the youth know of that experience that they came from, but they're impacted by it. Um, and certainly not a mother-blaming thing. <clears throat> but if the the mothers are in a stress stressful situation themselves, living in poverty, uh, being um, surrounded by drugs, alcohol, domestic violence, um, that has an impact. That starts to impact the brain of the the babies before they're born. Um, so we talk about them being uh, born into chaos. They live in chaos. They grow up in chaos. They may be taken into care by children services, which is more chaos. They're in and out of placements, more chaos, and they're becoming adults in chaos. Um, so this, this, uh, how this trauma uh, impacts on their brain. So they're growing up with a brain that's wired to their experiences. So their experiences are nurturing. Um, they have a need. The need gets responded to. They regulate. Um, it's predictable. These are not kids that have had those experiences quite often. They're kids that are hungry, need to be changed, and and nobody's responding to their to their needs. Um, there's abuse. They're surrounded by violence. Whatever the case is, and the brain is going to wire to that experience. So it's it's not the moral failings of kids that we have this population now. They're a teenager and they're and they're not coping well and they're dysregulated. 
that's the way their brain has been shaped by their experience. Um, so we know by the time they, they're a teenager, they've practiced, they're well practiced at not trusting, keeping people at emotional difference, building those walls around themselves, pushing people away, um, and finding their own ways to cope, which is often through through addictions. Um, trying to make that chaos in their, in their head go away, trying to numb out from uh, their traumatic experiences. Um, but the the challenge is the very thing they need to make, to make a shift in their lives they're pushing away and fighting, which is making connections and building relationships with people. So I think some of the way we've intervened is we get to know a youth and they engage in a testing behavior. Right, are you going to stick this around? This is a social worker. You get to know this. You try to get to know this youth and they'll push you away. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yes. You were starting yes. to explain it. So... Is because it's very threatening for them to have somebody coming into their life and then risking more rejection and abandonment. And that, uh, and this is uh, just indebted to the youth. I won't qualify this because this is stuff I've learned directly from from them in, in, my, in my experience. Um, but to get them to a point if they take the risk of allowing us into their life, so they go through this testing behavior, um, to see if we're going to be there, if we're going to hang out with them, uh, or hang in there with them. Are we, are we going to be the next just to come into their lives, make a bunch of demands of them, and then leave again without even saying goodbye? Because that's that's been their experience. Um, so, in a punishment mentality, which is shifted a little as we learn more about what trauma-informed practice, trauma-informed care is, um, but we go through this testing phase and tend to see the youth as defiant and resistant and uncooperative. And then because we have the authority, we can determine whether they're worthy of getting the help and the services they need. Um, but what we're not understanding is the resilience of that testing behavior. Like, why wouldn't you test somebody who is telling you they want to be involved in your life? That just makes sense. That's rational. To expect the youth just to trust and follow along with the plan that you've made for them, that's the irrational part of it. And that doesn't make sense. Um, but without understanding that, then we're just the next person that comes into their life and then leaves again. So we've got to work through that and, uh, and start having the youth question, why is this person hanging around? Why is this person different? What's, what's going on? And I can't make sense of this, this concept of creating a healthy confusion for them. So they start to question and, and then start to take risks. And then if they take the risk of allowing us into their world, that's really significant um, given their, the history of experiences that they've had. Can you talk about a case where you got tested and then yeah. We're able to get past that, like it's specific, yeah. like some specifics around how you got tested. Yeah, I had lots of that. One in particular was uh, exhausting and very, very frustrating. Um, a 16-year-old youth that was brought into care, um, raised in care, had been abused in care, um, so trusted nobody, um, so... I came onto the scene and I was the, the next effing worker that's going to waste her time. Um, 
And every time we got together subsequently, uh, which is frequently at the beginning, it was, uh, you're useless, you can't do anything for me, get out of my life. Um, with with frostier language and that. Um, but it, this went on, we were like three, three to four months in. And I would think, oh, I'm going to be seeing, uh, let's call her Sarah, going to be seeing Sarah today and say, I, I don't want to see Sarah today. It's just abuse every time. I, but I can understand, I, there was good justification why she was doing that. So She's abusing you. Yes. Okay. Verbally <laughs> abusing me. Yeah. yeah. And um, so it was just difficult. Um, but I tried to keep at it, keep at it, to get it to the point that she could say, okay, this guy should have been gone by now. What, what, what's going on? And then about three, four months in, I took a risk. I uh, didn't know how she was going to respond. Um, but I think I built up enough credibility because I kept showing up. And I said, uh, she was under permanent guardianship, so we had she had to work with us. Um, and said, I, I have a sense of why it's difficult for you to accept that I'm involved in your life when given the experiences you've had. And then it was, um, yeah, I... I push people away. That's my safe zone. And lots of tears. And um, and kind of that was a bit of the, the breakthrough of understanding and not punishing her for the way she was acting, but being part of that process and just working through it. So it took, it took a long time. And like I said, it was very challenging um, to do that, but it paid off in the end. And we uh, developed a, quite a strong relationship. And so hear from her once in a while. Uh, she's now in her 30s. Um, but that, I mean, that was probably an extreme example, but it's not unusual to go through some version of that. And I think we have to. But the reason I like it is the concept of the opposite of um, love is not hate, it's indifference. Because she was putting so much energy into the relationship um, that... You, Let's play with that, wait, wait it out, and there can be a lot of good that comes with that. And the more resistant they tend to be up front, the stronger the relationship we build um, once we get through that. It's an interesting, like Sarah's an interesting example in that, you know, the, the she was in a system that was making her act a certain way, had taught her to act that way, and then right. there's a breakthrough through your your practice, not doing what I think that the child welfare system is designed to do, which I think, and this is, you can correct me in this, but um, it's designed to keep kids safe, mostly from their parents or their parents' household and safe physically. Um, In this case, it didn't work, but for the most part, keeps uh, kids safe. But I think there's a lot of those unintended consequences when all you're trying to do or all you're concerned about or the legislation is concerned about is keeping kids safe. So I'm wondering what what the child welfare system should actually be designed to do. The example that I use a lot, and there's a, it's provocative, but there's a degree of truth in it, is the child welfare system is designed to keep kids safe, but it's also very good at creating homeless 19-year-olds. Yes, yes it is. And yeah. so how do you change this system so that it's designed to create, I don't know, thriving 19-year-olds? Yeah, and um, it, it's challenging. I, and I think just going back to the question of of. Cha- of challenge in the system it was to expand 
what risk and safety mean. Like it's not just from their families of origin. They're struggling with their own problems typically, but it's to also protect them um, from being unhoused, from addictions, from violence uh, that they're running into as well. And that's, that's, uh, I think that's critical because um, that, that can be seen as a separate issue. Um, and it's not. And again, it's thinking to what our end goal is with these youth. What do we want for them? Would we not want them to be better functioning, getting something out of life, having good experiences, having some good memories uh, out of life, having people um, that they understand actually care about them, that they're not so isolated? I mean, this population is a very excluded, marginalized group in society and uh, um, Dr. Bruce Perry uh, would say a neuroscientist um, we do we do a lot of things that push kids away when we should be pulling them in and I and I think the system at times um, some of the and agency too will design programs that work good for the system but they don't necessarily work good for the who we're serving but we we want them to feel engaged in society if you want you we can create violent kids we can deny them service we can tell them they're a problem we can try and punish them into compliance um and we can alienate them and make them really angry at society and nobody cares about them. But we can do the opposite as well. We can make them feel like somebody actually does care about them, that that uh, they don't have to keep pushing people away. Um, but we have to make time to do that. You know, and sometimes you'll, you'll hear, well, that's not our mandate. And say, well, why isn't it our mandate? Uh, with child protection... Um, we want them to be f- enjoying life, being part of society, contributing to society. Um, you know, and then we bring kids into the system because they've experienced rejection and abandonment. And then at the other end, we exit kids in a way they feel rejected and abandoned by the system. Um, because the system, for a lot of these kids, we are the guardian. Uh, so, and there's lots and lots of research around um, how youth feel let down by the system because there wasn't a good exit strategy. They just felt cut off. Uh, they felt, for some of the youth, that they lost, that they lost their, their family, their government family, their agency people, their support network. Um, and we don't, we, we're not even good at saying goodbye to kids. Um, one youth that had eight, eight workers in a year and I asked the... Um, there was a person from an agency who was providing independent living services and said, how many of those seven workers said goodbye to that youth? None of them had, right? So he was super angry, didn't want to share his story anymore, didn't want to be talking to social workers or key workers or whoever. And he had a right to that. That that makes sense. Um, so we do these things that are, that are not neutral, they're actually harmful to kids um, or to the youth and they're leaving the system as angry adults right and then perpetuating the system they're having their own kids perhaps children's services is getting involved as well um, though a lot of youth have done really well with their with their own kids um, you know the they want to go to school but they don't have the resources uh, advancing future helps but uh, 
it's it's a lot to work with with inflation and trying to survive in today's economy but there's uh, there's so much more that we could be doing but then the government reduced the age from 24 down to 22 um, they they created a program uh, with the transition to adult program without consulting the youth, without consulting the front line. Um, so they're doing things and they're not, they're, like I say, they're not neutral. They can be harmful for, this, for these youth. I remember writing a piece years ago and it was, there was a quote from Socrates or Plato or something. I can't remember which one, but, and the quote was uh, one of denigrating Plato or Socrates uh, the emerging generation, and that they were rude and uncouth and didn't respect their elders. And, you know, I've thought about that a lot over the years and how there is, I think, a generational bias. And I don't know if that's reflected in our models of um, children's services, youth in care, that sort of thing, or, or if we've just... We still have a hangover from this um, the idea that uh, you know you gotta you gotta punish a kid, you gotta teach him lessons. That's the way you do it. Um, any thoughts? Yeah, because uh, you know I think child welfare came out of a punishment mentality, and to a large degree, it's still there. Um, the high risk youth initiative we tried to shift away from that um, on the belief that. Uh, if you want to engage youth, punishing them, punishing them into compliance is an odd way to do it. Um, and I think those that population of youth, um, with all their trauma and their attachment issues, it's not that they can step back and and say, "What can I learn from this experience?" For them, it's just more rejection, abandonment, right there. Um, and that and that's the way they perceive it because that's being their experience. That's the way their brain's wired. Um, and then we put a lot of expectations. You know, I think that, uh, you know, you're 18 now, societal attitude, you, you got to be independent. you gotta, you got to be doing these things. Um, we know that a lot of youth with, with a lot of protective factors have, have good families, are staying at home well into the well into their twenties. They have a lot of support well into the twenties and beyond. Um, and yet, these youth that have had no role modelling, not don't have the healthy families. The expectations we place on them at eighteen um, to somehow magically have figured out what they want, what they need, and then they have all these strategies, and now they're just going to go and carry this out. It's just bizarre. Uh, and I, I, th- I do think that attitude comes out. And I think this new TAP program reinforces that um, because some of the support that was there previously is now not there and there's more responsibility for the youth to take their own initiative. But some of them don't even, they're not even connected to people. They don't feel supported. Um, and what we're asking for them is uh, is a lot, right? In a very complicated society now with having come through COVID and the opioid crisis, um, you know, youth struggling, trans youth, for example, who are overrepresented in suicide attempts, suicide uh, in general, mental health, addictions, 
big backlash now towards towards those youth. It's it's now harder for them to feel safe in society. So, um, yeah, I it's, it's more complicated. I get yeah, it's always that you know the next generation they're not as responsible as we were. They, it's just much more complicated than when I started thirty years ago. It's much more complicated for the youth now. Like it, very clearly, you've got some answers about what what the child welfare system needs to do differently. Um, you know, the the big question is going to be why is it not why is it not happening? But before you get into that, I think the thing that I I keep hearing is the state has decided that parents can't parent their children. So now you're a ward of the state, or the state's your guardian. And like as a, I recently became a father and. I don't know how good I am, but I put a lot of energy and effort into it, and I'm going to be there until the day I die. But the state is saying, you know, we're going to keep you alive till you're 18, and then and then you you have to execute a plan you're not capable of of executing. And I'm wondering, knowing this, knowing that we're setting these kids up to to fail, especially those at risk youth, what's what's stopping us from from changing the system to be more like the one that's going to help these kids be successful in in our communities? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, if you take the compassion piece out of it and just, you know, these kids are costing us a lot of money and stuff, the social return on investment of having healthy young adults in society is, uh, it's hard even to quantify. I mean, less, less, uh, so less costs around mental health, physical health, education, uh, children's services getting reinvolved, social assistance, age, whatever it is. Um, there's, there's, there's such a return on investment. Um, and it's just basic decency to want youth to be thriving in society instead of struggling day to day and not knowing if they're, if they're going to find a place to live or make ends meet or have a meal. So um, I, it's something I talk with... Um, colleagues about and and think about myself I, I what is stopping us I I don't know we just need to change our our mentality about who these kids are and what our role is in their life like yeah. we just need yeah. to look at them differently not as not as numbers but as we want this child to thrive and what, what is that going to take and, and, and again like as a parent I would want to do everything I can for right. my child to to thrive right. and as you know a, a taxpayer I would hope the the state when they decide that they're going to become guardians for, for a child, maybe my child one day, I would hope they would put that same energy and effort into right. ensuring that she's going to be successful in life. Yes, I, I would hope. I would hope as well. And, uh, you know, we have the capacity as a lot of caring workers um, in the system that want to do better, um, that they talk about why they got into this work, that they want to they wanna be helping, um, and are very frustrated that they can't do that to the degree they want. So, Peter, um, I wanted to ask you, you did use your journalism training at some point, yes? Yeah. And you've written a book. Please tell us about it. Yeah, thanks. Um, the title of the book is Working with High-Risk Youth, a Relationship-Based Practice. Um, first edition came out in 2017, and uh, second edition that I've uh, been working on will be coming out in early December. Uh, and few editions around um, uh, touching on some of these areas. How do we transition youth better? How do we 
how do we say a proper goodbye to this youth when, when we're leaving? Um, and yeah, just in, enhancing because I've learned things since the first edition came out. Um, and I have the privilege of using it in a course I teach about working with uh, high risk youth. Um, and I've enjoyed that as well. So, uh, yeah, but it'll Where, where it'll are you teaching? Up. At McEwen University in the uh, social work program there. Well, um, and is the book uh, uh, a layman? Pick it up and enjoy it, understand it, or is it more for a, a professional audience? Uh, I... I think it's accessible, and I th that was where some of the journalism training was was helpful. That uh, you know, I didn't want it to be just purely academic, yeah. and it is to a degree. But it's um, stories about youth, and um, I'm more conversational about some of the uh, the concepts in the book um, about the trauma, about making connections with the youth. Um, so, where could people get it? through the publisher, Routledge, Taylor Francis Group, or through Amazon. Um, Is there any at Audrey's? No. Uh, good order through yes, Audrey's, yeah. Yes, yeah. I would. We'll put, some, we'll put some links on the website so that people can find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That'd be great, thanks. Peter, it's really good to see you. Um, really quick story, really quick story. We, the journalism students, beat the law enforcement students that year in football. And you can imagine the law enforcement students are all big, tall, athletic types, and we're sort of pencil-necked geeks. And we beat them largely because of Peter Smith's right foot, because he kicked field goals for us. So Peter has always been, uh, in, in, in that big day in my life, winning Mind that you. game, Peter's a huge part of that story. Yeah, iconic day that was. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Peter. Yeah, thanks thanks very much. much. Great to be here.